Counting converts has become a common practice within modern church culture. But who are we counting? And why such a focus on the numbers? It may be partly due to the events recorded in Acts chapters 2 through 4. And today, we'll look a little more closely at the numbers Luke recorded to see if he was counting converts and telling us to do the same. Welcome to episode 47. Should we be counting converts? Well, welcome back to yet another episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. We are making our way through the book of Acts, and today we'll be looking at various passages in chapters 2 through 4. I'm Greg Hall, and before we get to the scripture, I wanted to give a quick update on the swim challenge I'm taking part in this month for the Stop Soldier Suicide Organization. I'm happy to say that I've made it three weeks into the challenge and I've completed 32 miles. That's quite a bit more than I normally do in an entire month. So I'm feeling good about that. And my goal is to get somewhere into the 40s by the end of the month. So I'll give one last update after the challenge is over to let you know how things went. Also, I wanted to let you know that I've started recording the audiobook version of my forthcoming book, Rethinking Rest. And in the next episode of the podcast, I'll be releasing a short excerpt from the first chapter. And I'm really hoping you'll listen. But more than just listen, I'm hoping that you will become what I'm calling an audiobook beta listener. And that just means that you would take a few minutes after you're done listening to the excerpt to fill out a feedback form that I've created at the RethinkingRest.com website. So just a heads up, the next episode is all about being an audiobook beta listener. And thanks in advance for those of you that are able to do that for me. And to kind of tie those first two announcements together, I've decided that for every feedback form that I get on that chapter one excerpt, I will be donating $10 to the Stop Soldier Suicide Organization. That's $10 above and beyond what I was already planning on doing. So it's your chance to not only do some good for me and give me feedback on how the chapter one excerpt went, but also to pass along a few extra dollars to a great organization. So, on with the scriptures. We are moving our way through the book of Acts. And in the last episode, I gave you a lot to think about, about Acts chapter 2, about the topic of speaking in tongues and the spiritual gift of interpretation. Today, we're moving on to something a little different, though. So, I think most people know that after the speaking in tongues episode in Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and talks to the crowd. But it's not just a regular speech. It's a sermon, and what a sermon it is. He gives the Old Testament background for and tells the story of Jesus the Nazarene. And he concludes that God has raised this Jesus up from the grave and exalted him into the heavenly realm. And at the end of Peter's sermon, Luke tells us that there were added about 3,000 souls or people that day. And by the way, that's not how we like to say it at all. We like to say that 3,000 people came to faith that day. Here, I got a couple just little comments from commentaries that I found. First, just out of the Bible knowledge commentary uh, about Acts chapter 2, verse 41, where the 3,000 souls are mentioned, it says this, 3,000 who believed 
were baptized, thus displaying their identification with Christ. It says this group of people immediately joined the fellowship of believers. Another one from the King James Version Study Bible. It says, the pattern set here for new believers is normative throughout this age. They publicly profess their faith through baptism and join in fellowship, in edification, and service with the assembly of God's people. That's just two commentaries, but that's going to be reflective of most every commentary out there on this one passage these 3,000 people, we assume that they are joining the fellowship of believers that day, that they are setting a pattern, as the other commentary said, for new believers in our age. But that's assuming that the majority of those there that came to faith in Jesus that day didn't have any faith to begin with. And I've talked about this in previous episodes. Specifically, it's another take of the Rethinking Conversion project that I'm working on Here in Acts, as the church is beginning, it's blossoming, we want to assume that everybody that's coming to faith in Jesus had no faith at all prior to these events. And this is how ridiculous that is. We want to assume that at an in-gathering feast in Jerusalem, at the temple, that there were absolutely no people of faith, or that somehow that their Old Testament faith in God was somehow not valid, like it didn't count. Or that when Jesus did his work on the cross, all previous faith was just thrown out the door and everybody was on equal ground. But that's not the case. And I hope today, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to take a look at some of the numbers that Luke uses. And I'm going to challenge you to think of these numbers maybe differently than you've ever thought about them before. Because oftentimes in our Western individualistic culture, it's the numbers that Luke gives us recording how fast the church grew, that somehow become a template for how we're supposed to be doing church today. We think there's some sort of a baseline standard as to what success is when we have an evangelistic event. And I'm just going to propose that Luke's doing something completely different with his numbers. So let's just dive in and take a look at what numbers Luke does use throughout the book of Acts, starting here in chapter 2, verse 41. First, I just want to state the obvious. Uh, The author is assuming that his reader is consuming the whole story. So that's not the way we often read the Bible, especially large books like the book of Acts is. But the author Luke has crafted this to be read and understood as a whole. So when we just pluck out one little section, like we always do, it lends itself to just overseeing some of the bigger connections that the original audience probably was making. And if that's the case, if Luke was expecting us to read the entirety of his message, let's just take a step back a little from this one story and ask what numbers does Luke present throughout Acts when he talks about the growth of the church? And since we're just making a list, we will start here in Acts 2.41, where it does mention that there's about 3,000 souls that were added that day. Also notice how it's stated. It doesn't say they came to faith. It just says that they were added. And I've got to believe it was just meaning that they were added to the group of people that understood Jesus to be the Messiah. And not only that, because there was a lot of people that accepted that when Jesus was alive, but also the additional facts that Peter included in his sermon. The fact that Jesus was crucified, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he has been exalted to the right hand of power in the heavenly realm. 
those that accept that additional information start creating a new group. It's like when your operating system comes out with a new version of software. Everybody that gets the upgrade, it's not like they're running a completely different system. They've just gotten the upgrade and they're added to a new group that has the upgrade. And as word gets out about an iOS update maybe, and more people hear about it and actually take the step of accepting the upgrade, they are added to the new group as well. Just a couple chapters later, we get another number out of the author. Luke records that when Peter and John are arrested, this is the beginning of Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are put in jail overnight. And then in verse 4, it says, But many of those who had heard the message, the message that they had just preached, believed. And the number of men came to be about 5,000. So this is the second number that Luke gives us. First, there's the 3,000 in Acts chapter 2. And then after another sermon, the number of men he says, came to be about 5,000. And in the next chapter, chapter 5, Luke gives another update on the growth of the early church. In verse 12 of chapter 5, he says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. That's a section of the temple there in Jerusalem. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And then in verse 14, and all the more believers in the Lord. Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. And so we don't get a specific number in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, but he does say multitudes. And that's a Greek word that can have a number of different senses depending on the context. It can be not just a multitude, it can be an assembly, a great number, a throng, a crowd, or a congregation. And we get the sense, we're only five chapters into the book of Acts, and we get the sense that Luke is very concerned about showing the growth of the early church, especially here in Jerusalem in the early days. In the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 7, says, The word of God kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So again, no numbers really given, but here it's just Luke's piling on the number of converts. He's just saying this is a quick thing. It's, it's catching on quickly here in Jerusalem in the early days of the church. And people are being added to this group of hearing about Jesus, either for the first time and getting the whole story about who Jesus was, or maybe they had met Jesus at a previous time and got to know him and come to faith in him, as we see throughout the Gospels. And here, they're getting the update as to what happened just a short time ago there in Jerusalem. Shortly after chapter 6, what we have is Stephen's defense. And Stephen gives quite a great sermon as well. It's not just Peter. And largely, from a, a big picture perspective in the book of Acts, after we leave chapter 7, the focus leaves Jerusalem and it starts spreading to the outside world. First goes to Samaria in chapter 8, and it eventually extends into Paul's missionary journeys. But there's a cryptic number that Luke includes late in the book of Acts. Really not a ton of numbers given for converts or things like that along the way. 
But when we get to chapter 21, Paul comes back to Jerusalem. And remember, Jerusalem is where they were counting, where Luke was specifically making sure that we were aware of what was happening with the number of people being added to their group. And in chapter 21, starting in verse 15, it says this, After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And notice, Luke is using the we here. So Luke is with Paul and his journeys. Verse 16, Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us. And then it says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles throughout his ministry. So Paul travels back to Jerusalem at this point in Acts chapter 21, and he meets with all the elders, and he begins to tell the story of his missionary journeys, and specifically what's happening among the Gentiles. And then in verse 20, Luke begins a conversation that goes into the question of circumcision and whether the Gentiles needed to follow the law. And so we're not going to get into that context, but there's a statement in verse 20 that a lot of people just pass over and miss it. Here, I'll read it here. Luke records that when the elders of the church heard what Paul had been doing among the Gentiles, they began glorifying God. And then they said to him, you see, brother, How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And then they go into the argument about circumcision and following the law of Moses. And But it's in this statement, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. It's talking about the group in Jerusalem, the followers of Jesus the Nazarene had swelled. And the problem is that most English translations just translate this Greek word as thousands. See all the thousands of people that have believed, talking about the Jews in Jerusalem. But we knew that all the way back in Acts chapter 6. We knew that there was 3,000 in one day. We knew that there was 5,000 men. We've been given the thousands number before. We would expect by now for this number to be much larger. And that's exactly what Luke is trying to communicate. And Luke is telling us by using a specific Greek word that here has been translated thousands, and it can mean thousands, but more often than not, it means much more than that. It can mean 50,000. It can mean 200 million, depending on the context. And this word connotates many tens of thousands. The picture that Luke is trying to present to us at the end of the book of Acts is that the number of believers in Jesus in Jerusalem has swelled into many tens of thousands. It is a huge group of people in Jerusalem that have heard the truth about Jesus, gotten the update, and been added to their number. Luke is presenting how fast the number of Christ followers grew in the early church, And this would make sense, especially if there was already a large number of people that truly believed in God. But I don't think Luke is telling us these numbers to give us a benchmark or as some sort of a goal to try and strive for. I think there's something much larger going on here because these aren't exact numbers, even though they're sometimes presented as exact numbers. He says it's about 3,000. He says it's about 5,000. He says it's myriads and a great number and tens upon tens of thousands. So what is it that Luke's trying to tell us?
So what is it about the numbers that Luke has chosen to highlight? Because both times he used the numbers as approximations. He said about 3,000, about 5,000, then multitudes, then tens of thousands. And remember, Luke is not writing for our individualistic Western mindset, where we as not only individuals like to count converts, but we as churches like to count converts. We do it within denominations. We do it outside of denominations. We do it in nonprofit evangelistic situations. We love to count our numbers because we've been trained to think that the higher the number, the more success our organization is experiencing. But what if Luke included his accounting for an entirely different emphasis? So let's just start by asking this question. Did those references to numbers that Luke did include in the book of Acts, do they have any significance in the biblical narrative at all? So let's just start with the number 3,000. If you search the Old Testament, groups of 3,000 people are mentioned four times in the Old Testament. There's one time in Joshua 7.3, it's the number of men that Joshua took up to Ai, the second battle on the conquest of the promised land. Then in 1 Samuel 24, and then again in 26, it's the number of men that Saul took with him to search for the young David. But there's one other time that 3,000 is mentioned in the Old Testament. And I think Luke handpicked that number and recorded it the way he did to draw our attention not to future exploits and evangelistic purposes, but he was reaching back into the Old Testament. And he intended for our attention to go back to an event that happened in Exodus chapter 32, when the Israelites were at Mount Sinai, and they were about to receive the law, which had been handed to Moses. So, I don't know if you've been in Exodus 32 recently. I suspect maybe not. But if you make your way back there, what you'll be reminded is that as Moses goes up on the mountain and is communicating with God and is receiving the law, this is actually the original event that the festival of Pentecost looks back to. It's the reception of the law on Mount Sinai. And would you be surprised if the number 3,000 shows up at the first Pentecost? But how does the number 3,000 show up? Moses is up on the mountain, and if you remember, he's up there for a long time. It's 40 days that he's up there. And the people are down at the base of the mountain. And Moses' brother, Aaron, is down there with them. And you can imagine, after 40 days of somebody going up on a mountain and then not appearing again for that amount of time, what would you be thinking? I'd be thinking that Moses is toast. We better start looking to find us somebody else, something else to follow. And that's exactly what they did. Chapter 32 begins by saying this, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. And Aaron, unfortunately, just folds. He, cr he crumbles really quickly here. He says to them, tear off the gold rings that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And they all brought gold to Aaron and he took it and he fashioned a molten calf. And then he said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And Aaron knows that this is not the way it's supposed to go about. So then I think he tries to slip in a little safety measure and says, hey, let's have a party. Tomorrow shall be a feast 
to the Lord. And there he uses the specific name of the God of Israel that did bring them out of Egypt. So they get up the next day, and let me tell you, they have quite the party. Well, eventually, Moses comes down. He comes near the camp. He sees the calf. He sees the dancing. And he gets really angry. And this is the famous incident where he throws down the Ten Commandments, the tablets, and they shatter. But that's not it. He begins talking to Aaron, and Aaron makes some really lame excuse about how the golden calf came about. And then Moses saw that the people were out of control. And he stood at the gate of the camp, and he said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And this is where the sons of Levi gathered around Moses. And he said to the sons of Levi, this one tribe within Israel, he says to them, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So with that background, let me just ask a question. Do you think that when Luke recorded the number of people that had been added to their number there on the day of Pentecost, and he recorded it as about 3,000 souls, do you think that he was completely unaware of what had happened at the first Pentecost event? Not only is it ridiculous to think that that wasn't on Luke's mind, but it is Equally ridiculous if we read the number 3,000 in the book of Acts and don't make that connection. Because the first round of people reading Luke's material here in Acts would have made that connection immediately. They would have known that that is the reason why Luke included the number. He's contrasting what happened on Mount Sinai, the first Pentecost event, with what happened in Acts chapter 2 at a Pentecost festival whose main purpose is to look back to that first event. Luke is emphasizing that God had demonstrated his presence atop Mount Sinai, and at Pentecost, atop Mount Zion, both events utilize fire and wind. He's emphasizing, without saying it, that on Mount Sinai, God gave his commandments on stone tablets, and at Pentecost, the Spirit of God began to write the law on human hearts. And what he does outright say is at Sinai, 3,000 were judged because they placed their faith in a golden calf idol. And at Pentecost, in Acts 2, about the same number of people appropriately placed their faith in Jesus Messiah. And they weren't taken away like the first event, but they were added to their number. So there's a really good connection, I think, for the number 3,000. But what about the other descriptions that Luke uses? What about 5,000 or the multitudes or the tens of thousands? Well, (laughs) let me just ask the question. When we're talking about the ministry of Jesus, does the number 5,000 sound familiar at all? Those who know their Gospels know that Jesus fed 5,000 in a city called Bethsaida. In fact, Luke decided to include that story in his Gospel, and when he did— He said there were about 5,000 men. It's the same way that it's stated in the book of Acts, about 5,000. What about multitudes? 
that description. Did Luke use that as a description in his gospel? He did, twice. In Luke 19.37, as Jesus was near the Mount of Olives, he says, The whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice and all the miracles which they had seen. What we lose in our translation is the Greek word that is translated the whole crowd. That word for crowd, it's the exact same word he uses in the book of Acts that's translated there as multitudes. And before we start to apply this in any way, let me just ask the last question. What about that description about the tens of thousands that we read about later in the book of Acts? Did Luke ever use that to describe the ministry of Jesus? And he did. In Luke chapter 12, while Jesus is teaching and taking on the Pharisees, he describes the crowd as so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. And the word that he uses there to describe the crowds that had gathered to see Jesus before the cross event were 10,000s upon 10,000s. It's the same description that he uses in the book of Acts to describe the group of believers that had gathered in Jerusalem by the end of the book of Acts. Luke seems to be using numbers in a much more calculated way than most of us may have assumed. By mentioning 3,000, 5,000, multitudes, and tens of thousands. What he's doing is he's connecting the ministry of Jesus' disciples in the book of Acts to the larger biblical story. First, he takes us back and contrasts Acts 2 with the events of the first Pentecost. And then, by using very familiar terminology to describe the crowds, he's suggesting that those who trusted in the risen and exalted Savior in the book of Acts could very well be the same people that followed Jesus around during his earthly ministry. Jesus had a group of 5,000. He had multitudes. He had tens of thousands who believed in him before the cross. And seemingly, the disciples connect with similar numbers to let them know the full ministry of the risen Messiah. So I know what we see when we read numbers. We think it's a benchmark. We think it's a goal to attain to. We think it's a success measure that we want to live up to. But that's our way of thinking about it. Luke carefully brought these numbers both to his gospel and to the secondary volume. And his use of numbers is trying to connect their outcomes to Jesus's ministry. I want you to notice something in Acts 2. When Peter was speaking, there were people in the crowd who were pierced to the heart. Now, we don't know the spiritual condition of these people prior to the sermon, but we do know there were both believers and unbelievers in the crowd that day. And I think it's good to notice how the Holy Spirit worked that day. Peter gave a great sermon, but it was the Holy Spirit that did the work of convicting the souls in the crowd. It was the crowd that asked, what should we do next? And so many times in our modern settings, we try and create a moment that's memorable. We push people to a point of decision and we ask for a response. But what would our faith need to look like if we just did our job of spreading the news of Jesus and then waited for people to start asking, what do we do now? 
Back in episode 41, I mentioned something that C.S. Lewis said about this uh, regarding the process of coming to faith. He said, emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. He described his coming to faith not as a decision, but he said it was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he's now awake. And he said, for what we commonly call will and what we commonly call emotion, I fancy these usually talk too loud and protest too much to be quite believed. And this is me just asking the question, what if we only saw our role in the conversion process as waking people up to the truth and helping them get out of the bed that they're in? And what if we just let the Holy Spirit do its work of convicting in its own time? That's what I see when I read through the book of Acts. I see a lot of preaching and discussing and exhorting and not a lot of gimmicks to pressure people into making a decision. What if we just presented the truth? And don't get me wrong, being diligent in doing that and doing it well. But what if we just presented the truth as best we know how and waited for people to ask, so what are my next steps? Now here's something. If we did ministry that way, I suspect the numbers that we're counting would go down. I think we would have fewer converts to count. And you might say, that's exactly the reason we shouldn't change. But if that's really the case, then exactly what are we counting? Are they really converts? Are we counting people today that have received the truth, that have been pierced to the heart by the Holy Spirit's conviction, enough to be baptized as a sign of alignment with the covenant that Jesus has offered? Okay, just listen to me for just a minute, and I'm almost done. If we create an emotionally charged situation that pressures people into a decision to raise their hands, what actually happens in those situations? And how have we come to believe that raising a hand or saying a prayer is an acceptable substitution for the sign that Jesus himself modeled for us? I'm just not seeing hands being raised and people being directed to say the sinner's prayer in the book of Acts. All that said, as we approach the book of Acts and we see that Luke is giving a report as to the people's response, especially in Jerusalem, and when he gives us numbers as a part of that report, first and foremost, we need to be reading those with ancient eyes. We need to recognize Luke is not giving us a goal-setting exercise. What Luke is doing is he's tying those numbers, the response that the disciples got, directly back to the ministry of Jesus, directly back also to the beginning of the story that God had with this group of people. He's showing the superiority of the new covenant. And thank God that there's a new covenant, right? Thank God that the law is written on our hearts, that we have the ability to hear from the Holy Spirit directly as believers in Jesus the Nazarene. Well, that's all I got for today. And thanks again for listening to this episode as we've continued to march our way through the book of Acts and looking at the different contexts that Luke, the author, has given us to explore. Remember, in the next episode, I'll be releasing an excerpt from chapter one of my audiobook, and it would be really helpful if you made your way over to RethinkingRest.com, filled out that feedback form, and then told a friend about it as well. 
You'll not only be helping me out, but also it will increase the donation that I'm making to Stop Soldier Suicide. Really good organization doing some good work out there. Thanks again. And hey, I really appreciate you listening to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Mm-hmm.